Well, today we're going to begin our new series on 1 Timothy. Uh, and we're just going to be studying today verses 1 to 2. Uh, but I'm going to read the whole of the first chapter just to give us a bit of a feel for this letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The hope of our charge is love that, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and slavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Righto, so we're beginning this new series on 1 Timothy. Now, just under half the books of the New Testament uh, were written by the Apostle Paul. And they're they're actually letters. 
in, in the Greek, the, the word for letter is epistole, hence our word epistle. Now, usually we talk about, oh, he's writing an epistle, meaning it's a very long letter. Uh, it's, not, doesn't, it's actually got nothing to do with the length. Uh, some of the letters are long, some of them are short. Um, and there's different styles of epistles in the book. So there's the normal letters where Paul would just write a letter to a church, um, and he wrote these to various churches. Then there's what's known as the prison epistles. These are letters that, that Paul wrote to various churches while he's incarcerated in prison. I know now, we might think, oh, it's a terrible thing that the Apostle Paul was put in prison, but the fact that he's in prison for so long in various times was, it was actually a good thing for us because while he was in prison, he still wanted to be preaching the gospel and he was writing letters of encouragement to church, different churches and he's writing letters outlining what the gospel is to others. And we have these because Paul was in prison and he spent this time writing these letters. But then there's another three books. There's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And these three letters are known as the pastoral epistles. Uh, they're quite different sorts of letters to the others because the other letters are all written to churches, whereas these pastoral epistles were written to individuals. They're written to Timothy and Titus, obviously. Now, these men were men who Paul knew well. They'd been fellow missionaries of his. They'd journeyed with Paul. They'd learned from Paul and he'd trained them well in the faith. And so in these pastoral epistles, some of the, the great theological topics that, that Paul would normally expound upon in his other letters, he doesn't do that. He has no need to do that. So, for example, Easter's coming up pretty soon. Who's, who's been getting ready for Easter? Some of us, we have visitors coming. Some of us are starting to think, okay, well, what are we going to do on those days off? Some of you might be planning to go away for the long weekend or, or whatever. But for me, when Easter's coming up, well, I need to think about what I'm going to preach on because Easter Sunday and Good Friday, of course. Um, and because we're starting a new series, what I did was I hunted through 1 Timothy looking for a, for a passage because I wanted to keep it up my sleeve, make sure I didn't preach on it before Easter. Um, and so I was looking for, for a passage on the cross. And normally in Paul's letters, he would talk a lot about the cross and he'd talk a lot about the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's what I was looking for for Good Friday. And you know what? In 1 Timothy, nowhere to be found. Now, Paul always talks about the cross, but there was no need for him to tell Timothy about it because Timothy was well-versed in the cross. And likewise, for Easter Sunday... I was looking for a really good passage teaching us about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means for us. Once again, nowhere to be found in the whole of the letter. And the reason that the teaching on these essential topics isn't in the pastoral epistles is because Paul is writing to some very trusted and very much loved missionaries. And, and if he was telling them about this again, it'd just be like preaching to the choir he didn't need to lay these foundations again. They knew the foundations and they knew them well. Now, in, in some of his other letters that Paul wrote, at, at times he'd say something along the lines of, I, I wish I could take you beyond just feeding you on milk. 
right? And, and he says, but instead, I've just got to keep retelling you the basics of the gospel over and over and over again. Well, in this case, Timothy and Titus didn't need to be fed on milk. They knew the basics of the gospel very well. And so he knew that he could take them beyond the basics. And my hope is that our church and everyone who's listening to this today um, are ready to go beyond being fed just the basics of the gospel. Um, I know for me, sometimes folks say to me, you should, all you should ever preach about is the cross. Well, the cross is something that we should know by now. And yes, we will keep preaching the cross. But at times, like such as when we're doing 1 Timothy here, we're going to be learning about all sorts of other things that God wants us to know. So, who is Timothy? And what's the purpose of Paul writing to Timothy? Well, in the Bible, Timothy first appears in a town called Lystra. That's his hometown. And he comes from a mixed family. His mum was a Jewish Christian woman and his dad was a Greek. We don't know if he was a Christian Greek or not. And when Paul and Silas passed through Lystra on their second missionary journey, Paul was very impressed with this young man named Timothy. And he had a good reputation with the locals. And so Paul took him under his wing and he basically treated this young Timothy as his apprentice in, in mission. And, and so they journeyed together. He took him with him. And there were highs. Yeah, as, as people heard the gospel and they believed, such as what happened in Berea, but it happened in lots of places. But they also experienced dangers where unbelievers would rise up against them and, and run them out of town, such as what happened in Thessalonica. They experienced heartache when false teaching would come into a church that they'd established and, and take people away from the true gospel, such as what happened in Ephesus. And there would be more heartache as a church would lose its love for one another and, and, and would promote themselves and their own I'm more spiritual than you are type thing, such as what was happening in Corinth. That, Timothy experienced all of these things with Paul. And, and Timothy was a party to Paul's letter writing. In fact, Timothy gets a mention in all but three of Paul's letters that he wrote. And often he is a part of the letter writing. It would not just be from Paul, but it would often be from Paul and Timothy and often somebody else. Even in this letter, Paul greets Timothy like this. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, I suspect that Paul could see that Timothy and Titus and men like them would become the next generation of preachers, that they would be men who would continue the work that Paul and the other apostles had already begun. You see, time, time was running out for Paul. The pastoral epistles are the very last of the letters that he wrote. Uh, he, he wrote them after the conclusion of the book of Acts. Now, Paul didn't write the book of Acts, but he's in it a lot. And the book of Acts finishes with Paul under house arrest in Rome. And sometime after the book of Acts, 
um, we know that Paul was later imprisoned again and executed in Rome. But between these two times, between his house arrest and his later arrest and execution, we know that Paul must have done another missionary trip, which we're not told about in Acts because Acts had already been written. And we know this because hints of this trip come through in Timothy and Titus. But we're not going to go into that now. So that's, that's who Timothy was. What's the purpose of the letter? Over the years, I've run numerous uh, young adult Bible studies. And at young adult Bible studies, the letters to Timothy are usually the favourites. And the reason they're favourites is because Timothy was a young man. And Paul is urging Timothy, don't go thinking that you're too young to do this, right? And when God calls us to something, when God calls us to a ministry, we shouldn't go thinking that I can't do this. I don't have the skills or I'm not old enough or I am too old or whatever. When God calls us to something, God empowers us and he enables us to do it according to his will despite our age, despite our abilities, despite our training or lack thereof. You see, Timothy had been called into leadership of a church. Some would say he was called as an elder. Some would say that he was called as a teacher. But it seems pretty clear to me that, that whatever we want to call it, that the, what Timothy was called to and the functioning of that role, um, we today would call that a pastor or a minister of a church. He was called to a particular church in a particular town to fulfill the role of what we would know of a pastor. You see, we're at a point in the church's history where the, the missionaries have done their initial work of evangelizing the gospel into these regions. And that would continue, it, it, the work of an evangelist always continues. We've always got to be preaching the gospel, both in church and out of church. And that, and that needs to continue. But what we're seeing here in Timothy is that now churches are beginning to form, for want of a better, a better word, structure. Right? That the positions of leadership are being recognised within the churches. In 1 Timothy alone, we see elders, deacons, and bishops or overseers. We see the establishment of church leadership and godly authority within the church. Now, some folk don't like the thought of that. Some folk don't like the thought of there being any kind of leaders in, in the church. That they don't want to have authority over themselves and, and they like to look back to the heady days of the beginnings of the Christian church where the gospel was first begun to be preached. And some people will say, look at that. There was nobody exercising authority there and that's the way it's supposed to be. But you know what? There were people exercising authority. It was the apostles, and they exercised the authority quite strongly. It wasn't just a matter of, oh, I just get led by the Spirit and I don't have authority. There was very much authority there. There wasn't lawlessness or a free-for-all, even at the very beginnings. In the beginnings of the early church, the apostles were the ones who exercised authority. But by the time we get to 1 Timothy, 
the apostles are starting to die out or about to. And we're seeing that, that the church is being prepared for authority to be exercised by others through the ministry of elders and deacons and bishops or overseers and whatever Timothy was, let's call him a pastor. And let's be clear about this. The apostles are the ones who are raising these men up to authoritative leadership. But why did they need to do that? Why did they need to establish these leaders of authority in the church? And why today does the church need men of godliness? Why do we need men of good character and faith? Why do we need them who, these people who know the good confession and who are able to tell the, the true gospel from a false gospel and who are able to exercise these characteristics in authority within the church? Why? Well, to understand this, let, let's have a bit of a look at the church that Timothy was pastoring. It was the church in Ephesus. Right, so Timothy's hometown was in Lystra, uh, which is in Galatia. But Paul asked him to, to head west and take up residence in Ephesus, which back then it was called Asia. Uh, today we call it Turkey. Um, the reason was the church in Ephesus, that there was constant friction going on in that church. And the friction was between certain persons in that church. Sorry, it was because of certain persons in that church who saw themselves as being teachers, but they weren't teaching the pure gospel. What they were doing is they were concentrating and bringing in speculations. That means making up stuff. Oh, this could be and adding it into it, and myths and genealogies. And to some folk, even today, this sort of stuff sounds really interesting. Oh, yes, I, I've never heard that before. Oh, yes, it could possibly work like that as we keep bringing in these speculations. And, and some people get consumed by these things. But let's remember what they are. Speculations. And speculations are not the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so these teachers had de deserted some of the basic tenets of the gospel and rather had elevated myths and speculations. And in, in verse 5, Paul reminds Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And as we keep studying through Timothy, I might keep bringing us back to this verse because this centres us on the aim, doesn't it? The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Right? Now, for us... We know the gospel. Most of us know it well. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins so that by faith we, we are forgiven and we're washed clean of our sins and we receive eternal life. This, this is a gift of grace from God, right? Is that a simple enough summary of the gospel for us? Is anybody happy to believe that gospel? 
Put your hand up if you're happy to believe that gospel and live it. Yep, good. Now, we know that. But if we receive this gospel without embracing the aim of verse 5, we've missed the point completely. The aim of our charge is love. We enter into God's love. We receive God's love. And we love with the love that God has given us. We love because he loved us first. The aim of our charge is love. But this love, it it, it issues from a pure heart. How does our heart get pure? We confess our sins before God and he forgives us of our sins. We're washed clean by the blood of Jesus. We're made pure. Doesn't matter how bad the sins are that we've carried with us our whole lives. Doesn't matter how evil we have been. You know, I've been watching what's been unfolding in the Ukraine and it's devastating. I remember in the earlier stages, um, I think it was um, Vladimir Velensky who was saying that um, God can never forgive you for this to Vladimir Putin. Well, he's actually wrong. Even that evil of killing thousands, tens of thousands of people, if there's genuine repentance, even something that evil can be forgiven. And and sometimes we think of ourselves, how can God forgive me for what I've done? Well, he absolutely can. He can forgive us completely when there's genuine repentance and when we yield before the Lord. And it issues from a good conscience. Good conscience is what comes by faith. By faith, we know that Jesus has forgiven us and our consciences are set free. We no longer carry that guilt anymore. And a sincere faith, not a faith that we make up. We receive what we've learned about Jesus And this is what we believe. We don't have to add to it. We're sincere in our faith. Now, the church in Ephesus. We know a lot about the church in Ephesus. In chapter 18 of the book of Acts, we hear of when the gospel first was preached at Ephesus. And in the early stages, there was a little bit of interest there. And after that, there was Paul... Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, each at different times, ministered there. When we get to chapter 19, Paul returns to Ephesus and the Christians are baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they receive the Holy Spirit. And for three months, Paul would go into the local synagogue, as was his custom, that's the, the Jewish place of worship, And there he would preach boldly. And this is where the trouble began. In Acts chapter 19, verse 9, it says, Some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. Right? So unbelieving Jews rejected these new disciples of Jesus and they rejected the gospel and they would revile them. They would abuse them. And it was so bad that they couldn't continue in the synagogue anymore. And so they shifted camp to a local lecture hall. 
Sounds a bit like Bush Disciples, doesn't it? We've shifted camp to the school hall and this is where we are. And a very real spiritual battle took place in Ephesus. It began with something good, but then there was a retaliation because of the good. And so as the gospel was preached in Ephesus, there was a very real repentance happening there before God. Um, those who used to practice magic, and it was quite common in Ephesus, by the way, they had a very real repentance before God and they burned their books of spells. And this was no little matter. These were very valuable books and writings that they had. Now, we might sort of think, well, why didn't they just sell them and then use the money for something good? Well, you see, that wouldn't be true repentance. True repentance is knowing this is so evil, we've got to be rid of this, and I cannot be a party of somebody else latching on to this. And so they had a big bonfire, and they burned all of these very valuable books. Um, we're told that the value of them were 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, when a piece of silver was the equivalent of, of a day's wages, that'd be the equivalent of about $10 million in our money today. This was the cost of their repentance. And, and you think of us, sometimes we go, oh, I probably should repent of such and such, but you know, oh, you know, the cost is great. Um, I know there was a group of young lads um, when I was a young fella, they gave their hearts to the Lord and they realised that some of the music they were listening to was terribly ungodly. And they had a bonfire one night and burned all their cassettes. Now, for the young folk, cassettes, you'll probably see them in a museum, um, but that's what we used to listen to in, back in the day. And these were quite valuable things that they'd saved up for over the years and bought them. That was the cost of repentance for them. And so... It says in, in verse 20 of chapter 19, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It really did. In Ephesus, it was an amazing movement of the spirit as people repented. But not long after this, a major issue arose. It says about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, let me interpret that for you. It was a disaster. It was terrible. Um, the local businessmen who, who made their living out of magic and evil spirits and, and selling idols and trinkets and whatnot, they saw the repentance that was taking place. They saw the, um, the movement of God that was taking place in their own town and the way that people were, were just leaving their old life behind and embracing this new life and they quite rightly realised that their livelihoods were at stake. Let me tell you, when true revival comes to a town, the publicans shake in their boots and the drug dealers need to look for a different living. Right? It's not just, I'm not talking about just when one or two people become a Christian. But when a true revival comes and large portions of the community turn their hearts towards God and have this great experience of, of, of repentance where they just 
turn away from their old life, the way you spend your money will be very different. And the, the town's economy will notice it. In Ephesus, the temple of the goddess Artemis, it was the local tourist attraction. It was what defined Ephesus. And those who profited from this trade were worried that the trade was going to be devalued. And there was a very real spiritual battle going on here. And it led to a riot, a very violent riot. And they wanted to see these, these Christian preachers killed. And it was a town clerk, a civil authority, who managed to finally, finally quiet them down. And, and quite often, this is the way it was. The civil authorities would step in to maintain law and order. And they would wind back the violence that was being perpetrated against the, the gospel preachers. And we're going to talk about this more in a few weeks' time. Anyway, at that point, things got too hot in Ephesus for Paul, and so he moved on. The next we hear about Ephesus is in Acts chapter 20, when Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders, and trouble is at foot once again. And this trouble isn't from the outside. It was trouble that was going to happen on the inside. You see, some who had the appearance of being Christians would come in, only they weren't Christians. They would say some of the things that made them seem like Christians, but he describes them as fierce wolves, not sparing the flock. And he says, and, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. And what we read in Acts sets the tone for pretty much every encounter that we know about Ephesus. The movement of God, but at the same time, there would be problems being repeated over and over again. And a fair bit of the time, it was the same people who were the centre of the trouble. The spiritual battle continued. It was from prison that, that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. We know it as the, what book do we call it? Not a trick question. Ephesians. And it's in this letter that Paul talks about the spiritual battle. He tells us to put on the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right, so, so what, in a summary, what was going on in Ephesus? One, there's a spiritual battle going on. Two, the church needed to be reminded of the gospel. Why? Because of number three, there were some of their own number who would speak twisted things and lead people astray. Four, it was a church in need of love. And five, it was a church who needed to learn to live in unity. And when a church loves each other, that's the only time that there can be unity in a church. Right? You can't have unity in a church unless we love each other. And 
unless we all believe the same thing. We all believe the truth. And we're going to see some of these same things coming through in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. I'm not going to say anything more about those now because we'll cover them when we get to them. But there is a final word on Ephesus and it comes direct from the word of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus looked at the church at Ephesus and assessed it. See, in the, in the book of Revelation, Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches. And the first cab off the rack is Ephesus. Now, it seems that some of the things that Ephesus had been dealing with, with God's help, they'd stayed strong. And some of the things that Timothy has been told to, to work on with the Ephesus church, they've, it's worked. They've stayed strong. Because Jesus said, I know. He says, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. Now, when he talks about patient endurance, usually that's in relation to, to um, standing strong in the faith despite opposition, right? And persecution and suffering for your faith. I know your patient endurance. He says, I know how you tested the false teachers and the false apostles. I know how you didn't put up with them, right? So this is what Timothy's going to be told to... to his concern is for these people who speak twisted things. And, and they did it. Jesus says, I know that you didn't put up with it. And I know how you haven't grown weary. And I know how you patiently bear up for my name's sake. But he also said, I have this against you. You don't love like you did at first. So they'd managed to get a fair bit right. But the issues have been pretty similar all the way through. But they didn't love. They didn't love. And that's something we have to be really careful that we as a church, some people, some churches, yeah, we're just going to be all about love and so they don't care about, oh, it's just all about live and let live. It doesn't matter what teaching happens. Whereas the opposite of that is when a church can be so sure on we've got to get the teaching right we've got to get the teaching right and we stop loving it has to be both and the role of timothy has been to help them to grow together as a church to grow in christ to grow in truth to grow in love and i'm going to say as a pastor timothy's authority and his role, his role was to lead by example, to teach, to rebuke, to encourage, to keep them away from pointless speculations, uh, to de develop good order in a church so that it wasn't just a free-for-all and, and so that those who would teach twisted things couldn't just get up and throw in the red herrings that distract everybody and gets everybody muddled and at each other's throats. And the aim, love. So that's what we've got ahead of us in 1 Timothy. And um, I'm looking forward to it. 
I hope you're looking forward to 1 Timothy as well. Um, but I also promised you that, that we're only going to have the introduction and then some, just a few brief words on the first two verses. And I haven't touched on them, so we'll just do that quickly now. I, sorry, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy was placed to be a pastor of a church that had a lot of friction. And the opening blessing for Timothy is something that he was going to need. Grace, mercy and peace. Now, for a Christian, grace, mercy and peace, it's more than a wish. Now, when my mum was teaching us as kids to write letters, we'd Dear Auntie Margaret, I hope you are well. I mean, yeah, okay. I, I did hope that she was well, but is that sort of like wishing her well or, or, or what is it? Now, when, when we have these greetings in these letters, grace, mercy and peace, it's not, it's not just a wish. It's not a, gee, I hope these things might happen for you. It's a blessing. It's a blessing from God the Father and, and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's something which is ours, grace, mercy, and peace. And, and as we study this letter to Timothy, my prayer is that we also would be blessed with grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. My prayer is also that, that some of us would hear the call of God on our lives, and that we would receive the encouragement that Timothy is receiving in this letter. That we would be encouraged to serve in the Christian faith as Timothy is being encouraged to serve. Um, that we would be encouraged to not be timid, but to have the courage to step up and to serve how God would call us to serve. That we would have the courage to step up and share our faith with people who who don't know Jesus, that we would have the courage to step up and encourage those who do, that we wouldn't be timid. Let's pray. God, our Saviour and Jesus Christ, our hope. As we study this letter to Timothy, Lord, we want to begin now by surrendering ourselves to you. Soften our hearts. We submit our will to you. And we seek your will be done in this church and in ourselves. Lord, may we, as Timothy, be true children in the faith. May we not be imposters. May we not be half-hearted spectators, but true children in the faith. Lord, we ask Bring us into your ministry and mission in this world and bless us with grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.